Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. Acts 28:17-31. The Acts of the Apostles, or better yet, the Acts of God the Holy Spirit, gives us a history of how the church began and grew during its first few decades of existence. The first part of Acts focused on the ministry of the Apostle Peter, but then in chapter 13, the focus shifted to the Apostle Paul as he brought the good news of Christ not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles throughout the known world. We saw Paul get saved on the road to Damascus, called to be an apostle, and then we saw him go on three amazing missionary journeys, spreading the gospel to anyone and to everyone that he could, all for the glory of God. Here in chapter 28, Paul has finally made it to Rome, and oh, what a journey it has been, right? We know this, we've seen this. Paul has been longing for this day for many years. Three years earlier, when he wrote the book of Romans, he expressed his heartfelt desire to finally come to Rome and meet the Christians in this city. And now look, here he is. No, he wasn't expecting to be here as a prisoner, but that's okay. He's here, and God has clearly brought him here. In today's passage, we can observe five events. But the first one is just a reminder for us from what we looked at last week, that Paul finally came to Rome, and he was allowed to live by himself, chained to a guard. House arrest. Verse 16, look at this. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. That's really an amazing thing. Now remember, again, getting here wasn't easy. Remember, he was going to make a short stop in Jerusalem, and then he was finally going to come to Rome, but it didn't work out like that at all. Instead, Paul was falsely accused, beaten by a mob who fully intended to kill him, tried a number of times, plotted against to be killed a number of times, and then he was taken to Caesarea, and he was imprisoned there for two years. Finally, after more ridiculous trials, and then having... Uh, uh, to appeal to Caesar, Paul finally came to Rome by ship. As we saw, the trip across the Mediterranean was fraught with danger as a hurricane beat down on on Paul and the 275 others, and they should have died, right? I mean, they clearly should have died, but God was with them. And so they were shipwrecked on Malta. Finally, after three months, they made their way to Rome, and the saints welcomed Paul. Remember that? They met him. They came out to him as far as 43 miles from the city in order to greet Paul. And so Paul is greatly encouraged as he arrives in this great imperial city. So what about Rome itself at this time? Well, at this time, Rome is powerful, but it's also on the decline. For clearly, the golden days of Rome were long gone. See, dictators of Rome had usurped the power of the people, And what had began as a republic was now dead. See, it had turned into tyranny, into a dictatorship. For the emperors had seized more and more power. And this man, who was now the emperor, was the worst of all. Remember his name? Nero. Nero. Interestingly, when Paul arrived in Rome, Nero would have probably been no more than 25 years old. But even so, his hands were already bloodied with the murder of his own mother which probably occurred about the year before Paul arrived, around A.D. 60. As Paul entered Rome, 
He would have seen the temple of Jupiter, which stood out and dominated the city. There was no Colosseum in Rome at the time of Paul, but he would have seen the three houses of Augustus, Tiberius, and Caligula, which at this time had been tied together to make a formidable and massive palace, which was now the home of Nero. Paul would have also seen the great temple of Mars. Even more, Paul would have seen the wickedness, the idolatry, and the terrible paganism of this great city. For Rome had become a center of paganism and wicked decadence. The population of Rome at the time when Paul arrived would have been approximately 2 million people, and they were confined to a very small area. Historians tell us that one million of those people were slaves, and the other million of them were known as citizens, as legitimate citizens. Most of those people, as one preacher noted, were absolutely penniless. Paupers who slept in the streets and who slept upon the parapets and whatever else they could find outdoors in the city of Rome because they had absolutely nothing. That said, those who were citizens lorded their little power that they had over those slaves, even though nearly all of them were, again, absolute paupers. See, all the money resided in the hands of a few people. There were 700 senators, 10,000 knights, 15,000 soldiers, and then a handful of dignitaries, and that was pretty much it. And look, all the finances and all the power rested with those people. And again, the mass of the two million people existed in abject poverty. The result, among other things, was that there were constant slave revolts going on in Rome. Thousands of these people had no homes, and their lives were ruled by wicked immorality as a whole. And look, in the midst of all that comes the Apostle Paul, the servant of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. And as one noted, his interest in Rome wasn't sociological, and it wasn't economic, and it wasn't cultural. No, it was purely evangelistic. See, Paul wants this mass of desperate and needy people to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who already knew the Lord, he wants them to grow and mature in the Lord until glory. That's it. That's, that's his goal. That's his aim. That's it. But look, Paul is chained to a guard. And he's confined to a house. So how is Paul going to make a difference for the Lord in Rome? How? Question. Is prison going to stop Paul from making a difference for the glory of God? Is it? No way. In this prison, Paul wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He also had a great impact on the household of Caesar, along with many other souls there in Rome. See, it's about perspective. Perspective. Okay, so now what? Verses 17 through 20, let's look. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because, listen to this, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Who's the hope of Israel? Jesus Christ. So first, by way of reminder, 
Paul was allowed to live by himself, chained to a guard. And now second, Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. Now at this point, Paul has been in Rome for only three days, but Paul isn't one to dally in the work of the Lord. No. And so he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. That makes sense because this has been the pattern throughout the book of Acts. We might remember that. To first begin ministry with the Jewish community in the cities that Paul visited. And even though Paul was considered to be the apostle to the Gentiles, hey, Paul never forgot his Jewish countrymen. And it was only after they rejected him that he then went to the Gentiles. The Jewish community in Rome at this time is estimated to have numbered forty to 50,000, with most of them being slaves or former slaves. So Paul called for the Jews, as was his custom. Why else would Paul want to meet with the Jewish leaders? First, Paul would have uh, been released uh, in Jerusalem had it not been for the Jews in the city who objected. Remember, it was because of them that Paul made his appeal to Caesar and now finds himself facing trial in Rome because of the Jews. Second, Paul doesn't need the Jews stirring up trouble, accusing him of things that aren't true. And so Paul needs to present to them the facts as quickly as he possibly can. Now remember, since Paul was a prisoner, he wasn't able to go and visit the synagogues as was his custom. So he arranged for the non-believing Jewish leaders to come to him. This would have included the important leaders in the synagogues, along with the wealthy trade merchants and other people who played an important role in the city of Rome who were Jewish. How did that come about? By probably using believers in the city to act as messengers. And so Paul invited them to come to him, which they did. So now they have come together, and that's when Paul spoke to them. First, he told them that he had done nothing against the Jewish people or against their customs, against their traditions. Second, Paul said that the Romans believed that he was innocent. Remember, the Romans, they had examined him and they were willing to release him and they would have released him except that the Jews objected as they continued to press their case against the apostle. Third, Paul examined that, explained that he was forced under those conditions to appeal to Caesar since he was a Roman citizen. And that's why Paul was now in Rome to stand before Caesar and to present his case. Not to complain about the Jewish nation or its leaders, but to defend his innocence. Paul saying this was important because some 15 years earlier, Claudius had expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome. It was because of that that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. Remember that? Well, they had left Rome because of that expulsion. See, evidently, there had been a disruption between the Jewish community and the small Christian community, and Claudius dealt with that disturbance by simply expelling the Jews out of the city. The Jews have now been reintegrated into Roman society, but they were still very sensitive about that situation. And so Paul is reassuring them that he's not here to complain about the Jewish nation or its leaders, that he's not here to disturb the Jewish people in any way. In fact, as he said in verse 20, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Where is their hope found? In Christ, right? In Christ. Remember? Since the cross, Judaism is over. It's over. It's done. Since the cross, Judaism is null and void. Or rather, it's fulfilled in Christ. Everything that Judaism pointed to in the Old Testament, it was all leading up to Christ. And when Jesus came, lived, died, and rose from the dead, all of that was fulfilled. And now it's all about Christ. 
No more offering sacrifices, praise the Lord. No. Repent and surrender to Christ instead. No more binding laws that were impossible to keep. No. Believe and glorify Christ by loving Him and by loving others from the heart. See, Israel's hope and our only hope today is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so Paul makes it clear that he's not here to cause any trouble for the Jews. No, he wants to save them. He wants to evangelize them. He wants their souls to turn to Christ in saving faith for salvation and life. Look at their response in verses 21 and 22. Then they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. It's very interesting. These guys are saying that they hadn't heard anything about Paul's case from Jerusalem, either by letter or by messenger. Also, they're saying that they knew nothing bad about Paul. Really. Commentators wonder about the truthfulness of what they're saying here, and so do I. I don't believe them. Regardless, at a surfacey level, it seems that the Jewish community in Rome didn't seem to be as militant in their opposition to Paul, the one who had turned from Judaism to Christianity, the one who had turned the world upside down with his message, a message that the Jews hated. And so they said that they hadn't heard anything bad about Paul or received letters about his case. However, as for Christianity, they said that they had heard about it, and what they had heard about it wasn't good. It's spoken against everywhere, they said. Even so, they're willing to hear his view on the subject, and so they set a date for a second meeting to talk about the Christian faith. Question, when did we ever get the idea, as Christians, that everyone is going to like us? What's the deal with that? It seems from Acts that the best way to tell if you're truly honoring the Lord or not is when you're spoken against. And not because you're being ungodly or rude or holier than thou or hypocritical or sinfully judgmental or arrogant. No, but because you're being godly and speaking the truth and being a bright light in the midst of a very dark world. And just as a world killed Jesus and all the prophets... How can we expect to be loved by this world that isn't our real home anyhow? For truly, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. Our call, see, is to glorify God, not men. Our call is to preach the gospel, not a watered-down version of it that appeals to sinful souls. Our call is to live out our faith without compromise, and that often exposes the sin of those around us who revel in compromise. But this is our call. And the result is that, first and prayerfully, that souls will get saved as they see and hear the truth of God. And then second, we will be spoken against as we exalt the Christ whom we love, but whom this world hates. So be it. Look what happened next, verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jews, Jesus, from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. And so we find that third, Paul testified of the kingdom of God and persuaded them concerning Jesus. How good is that? Look, they appointed a day to meet, 
And when the day came, many people showed up to hear from Paul at his lodging, the place where he was being held as a prisoner. This second meeting was larger than the first one. It seems that it was attended not only by the rabbis, but also by the prominent men of the synagogues. The meeting lasted from morning till evening while Paul expounded to them his understanding of Christianity and its relationship to Judaism. And oh, what an opportunity, an opportunity that Paul most definitely seized upon. See, this is another great moment for Paul to preach the gospel before a Jewish audience and he's not going to squander it. And while there must have been some dialogue and responses from his audience, think about this. For all intents and purposes, Paul preached a sermon that lasted all day. From morning till evening. Amazing. And they stayed. And they listened. Luke's summary of this day-long sermon is really pretty brief. He explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And so we find that Paul's message was essentially about Jesus and about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. See, note a few things about that sermon. First, note that Paul employed a variety of preaching, teaching methods. He explained, he testified, and he tried to persuade his Jewish hearers. The use of persuade is noteworthy. It speaks of Paul's speaking skills and powers of gathering evidence in a convincing fashion, as well as doing so with heartfelt conviction. The Greek word used here suggests high energy and emotional conviction. So Paul is clearly passionate about passionate about what he's saying. Clearly, Paul is fired up about his message to these needy souls. Yes, Paul's life was on the line in the charges brought against him, but that's all secondary to the heart Paul has for these lost souls who were now standing before him. As Paul wrote a couple of years earlier to the church in Rome, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren. My kinsmen according to the flesh, Romans 9, 1. Talking about these unsaved Jewish people who are now standing before him. See, Paul longed to see members of his own race come to know Jesus Christ and embrace him as Savior. The Savior who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. And it was very emotional for Paul. I mean, his heart was taken up in this. He longed with every fiber of his being to see these Jews converted to Christianity and embrace Christ the Messiah, Christ the Deliverer, Christ the Savior. I pray we feel the same way for the many lost souls around us. Does not your heart burn with passion for the souls that are lost around you? Paul longed to see his fellow citizens saved from hell and wrath. And so should we. Second, Paul preached Jesus. As he had declared earlier, Jesus alone is the hope of Israel, verse 20. And so Paul focused all day on Jesus. Remember the two guys on the road to Emmaus? After Christ rose from the dead. They were talking to the newly resurrected Jesus and they didn't yet know that it was Him. In Luke 24, 25, Jesus says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And, here it is, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And so, on the Emmaus Road, 
Jesus had taken the two disciples on a Bible study walking tour through the Old Testament scriptures, and he was interpreting to them all the things that the Old Testament said about himself. Well, here in Rome, Paul engages in a similar Bible study. The Bible promises a Messiah, a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. He alone is the hope of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament Scriptures that a Messiah, that a true Deliverer would come. He's our only hope too, and don't we know it? It is by faith in Him that we are assured of forgiveness and that we are promised everlasting life. Him alone, the one that the Scriptures pointed to, the one who is God the Son, who left heaven and came here, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for all who believe, and then three days later, he rose up from the dead. Jesus alone. See, sin condemns us and separates us from God and banishes us from heaven, but Jesus took the believer's sin onto himself and was punished so that we who believe could be forgiven. He died so that we who believe could be saved. And so, by grace through faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, everyone who believes on him in true, repentant faith will be saved from sin, hell, and wrath. So, he's the hope for the Jews, and he's the hope for the Gentiles. He's our hope as well. Our only hope. And the old look forward to him. The new is about him and looks back on him. And it's all about him, and so should we be all about him. What else matters? And Paul seeks to make that clear to his Jewish audience there in Rome in his prison home. Third, Paul preached the kingdom of God, verse 23, and then verse 31. The kingdom of God is where God the Son, Christ the King, reigns. And preaching the kingdom meant proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Christ, the good news that sinners in the realm of Satan, death, and destruction could enter into the realm of salvation, life, and glory. That those who belong to the kingdom of Satan could enter the realm of the kingdom of God and be saved and go to heaven. Now, the Jews of the day would have primarily thought of the kingdom of God as something physical, where the Messiah would rule and the nation of Israel would be exalted above all the other nations of the earth. And while that will indeed happen in the future messianic reign of Christ when he returns, that isn't why Christ came that first time. For the kingdom of God is essentially a spiritual kingdom. And to enter that kingdom, a person must be born again. He must be born from above. See, it's not about enough to be Jewish. It's not about being Jewish. The Jew, Jews wrongly believe that because they were born Jewish, that they were heirs of the kingdom of, to come. That's wrong. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the first birth isn't enough. There must be a second birth. There must be a spiritual birth. I mean, how could unrighteous people inherit a kingdom of righteousness? They can't. They must be righteous to be heirs of a righteous kingdom. They must be born of God. See, they need the grace of God, and that's what Paul taught. And that's why he spoke so much about Jesus, our only hope of being born again, our only hope of being made right, our only hope of being spiritually cleansed, of being forgiven, of being saved, of being made fit for the kingdom of God, the perfect kingdom, the eternal kingdom. See, Jesus, the King, is our only hope of getting there through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But as we know, that was what the Jews stumbled over, right? A crucified Messiah. 
a Messiah who would be cursed, a Messiah who would be put to shame, who would be made a public spectacle of. No, to them, the Messiah was this conquering king who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, not some carpenter from Galilee who was arrested and beaten and humiliated and executed by Romans. They saw him as one who would conquer the Romans, not be defeated by the Romans. And so Paul had to explain that while it's true that Christ will be an exalted king who will subdue the nations and rule over them in the future, look, he first had to be a lowly servant and slain as a sacrificial lamb in order for anyone, anyone to be a part of his eternal kingdom. And so because of Christ and what he did, look, it's through faith in Christ that we receive the righteousness that qualifies us to inherit the kingdom of God. There is one Savior, and there is one way to be saved, Jesus Christ. And Paul preached that message with intensity and with passion and with heart. I mean, this was what was foremost on Paul's mind, not the score of the game. Right? And not his retirement account. Not, not his own safety, no. But glorifying God through the salvation of other lost uh, uh, souls around him, knowing his responsibility to share the gospel with them. Well, the response was divided. Some of Paul's visitors were convinced, praise the Lord. They believed what they heard and they took it to heart. They responded in faith to Jesus and how good is that? They were saved. One soul is great, two is better. And many believed, praise the Lord. Others disbelieved. This means that they rejected Paul's testimony, which means that they rejected the offer of mercy and they spurned the very scriptures in which they claimed to place such trust. They rejected Christ and in rejecting Christ, they turned their backs on the one true way of salvation. And so the meeting broke up with the Jews disagreeing amongst themselves. Question, what accounts for the various responses given to Paul's preaching? When Paul had witnessed before Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice in Caesarea, not one of them responded in saving faith. So what was wrong? Was it a lack of evangelistic expertise by Paul? Did he somehow fail to employ the right technique? Was his delivery off in some way, was it? No way. Look, as his audience is about to leave, Paul had some final words for them. The words of Isaiah chapter 6. These are the words of God that God gave to Isaiah when he commissioned him to have his great ministry to Judah, a people who had rejected the truth of God, and he was to preach to a, a preach a, a very difficult message and have a very hard ministry. And this is what God told Isaiah to say, and this is what Paul said to these Jewish men right there in Rome on this day. Verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves... They departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. What, what is going on here as Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 6? 
Well, again, these words were first given to Isaiah in response to his willingness and obedience to become the Lord's servant. He said, here am I, send me. And those words must have sounded very strange to Isaiah when he first heard them. Look, God was sending Isaiah to proclaim a message that the people wouldn't accept. Now think about that. We often say, wow, that preacher is really successful. I mean, look how big his church is. But that's not necessarily the truth. I mean, whatever Isaiah might first have thought when he accepted the call by God to go, he wasn't going to be externally successful for his ministry would be rejected. Worse, his ministry would leave people less sensitive to spiritual things than they were before as their hearts would become calloused by their negative response to God. So clearly, earthly success doesn't necessarily mean spiritual success. No. So question, what does God want? What does God want from us? What does God want from me? What does God want from this church? What does God want from you? He wants faithfulness. Right? He wants obedience. And the results are up to God. Also, note that these words reveal that since the Jews had said a collective no to God, that the message of salvation was now being offered to the Gentiles. Look, Paul loved the Jewish people, but he saw in their rejection of the gospel the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and it reminds us of what a solemn thing it is to hear the word of God. See, it requires a response from us. Don't be hard. Don't be callous to the truth of God. It requires a response of faith, a response of obedience. We may not understand everything that we hear or that we read, but we must be responsive to it. For when people turn away from the truth, there's a consequence. Their hearts become hardened and they become insensitive to the truth. So I say to you, respond. The Jews of Isaiah's day ignored the truth and they became harder to the truth and they were judged for that. Most of the Jews of Paul's day also ignored the truth of the gospel that saves and the response was a hardening of heart. And so Paul turned his attention to the Gentiles. See, the Jewish people sinned against the truth and Paul held them accountable and guilty for that rejection. In like manner, each one of us is accountable and responsible for what we do with the truth of God, with the good news that saves. Don't reject it. No, respond to it. Every time. The stakes are high. Respond. Surrender to Christ in repentant faith and be saved from all your sin. And then for the saved soul, respond and draw near to God today. You're all in all. It has eternal value. Don't put it off. Don't harden your heart. Listen and respond. Because there's a consequence when you don't listen or respond. Verse 29 tells us that the Jews departed. They had a great dispute amongst themselves. How sad is that? They should have been contemplating their spiritual condition, not arguing. They should have been thinking about heaven and hell and where they were going to spend eternity not arguing. They should have been thinking about how to be forgiven of their sin, rescued and delivered from wrath, not arguing amongst themselves. So it is with the lost soul. Living for the here and now only, focusing on money, on things that rot, houses that burn, indulging in self and sin that lands them in hell. Living only for the here and now. But then what? What can you give in exchange for your soul? What really matters? Only Jesus and what you do 
with him. He alone can rescue wretched sinners like us, only Jesus. May God speak to our hearts. Look how Acts ends, verse 30. You've been waiting for this for two and a half years, haven't you? (laughs) Verse 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. He's in prison under house arrest. And received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. That's how Acts ends. So we find that for two more years, Paul stayed in his rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, which is a wonderful change. I mean, in previous years, Paul had to go out to the people, right? Three missionary journeys, traveling over land and sea to bring the gospel to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. But now look, people are coming to him now. All kinds of people. Some were Jews, many were Gentiles. And look, Paul had a ministry among his Roman guards that reached even to Caesar's household. So Paul was visited by Roman bigwigs and also by Roman slaves, and he didn't care so long as he got to preach the gospel to them. It was during this time that Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon in the city of Colossus. Onesimus then came to Rome. He probably hoped to lose himself in the crowded streets of the capital, but then something happened. Perhaps he became destitute and he needed help. But whatever the case, Onesimus knew that Paul was in Rome. He sought Paul out and he was converted by the Apostle Paul. And so it was that because of his imprisonment that this slave was introduced to Christ and he was saved. Question. Can God use you in prison? Absolutely. So all kinds of people came to Paul. But when he wasn't explaining the gospel or giving wise biblical counsel, he was writing letters. It was from his confinement in Rome that Paul wrote his prison epistles again. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So Paul's years in prison weren't idle years. In fact, he wrote to the Philippians that his circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In other words, the gospel was spreading throughout the city to all levels of society and into various parts of the whole empire. Think about that. I mean, for years, Paul wanted a ministry in Rome, but he could never have imagined the way that it would happen. Even so, it was greater than anything the apostle Paul himself could have planned. Being arrested and put into prison. See, because of his arrest, he stood before world leaders, Roman governors, kings, and finally, he would stand before the emperor himself and make a defense of the Christian faith to Nero, just as Jesus had promised. How often do we think, oh, this is a very, very bad thing. But to God, it's a very good thing that he will use for his glory and for our eternal benefit. Note that From the time of his arrest in Jerusalem to the end of his time in Rome, Paul was in prison for almost five years. Think about that. Hard years, important years, painful years. But look, they weren't wasted years. And Paul redeemed those years in prison for the glory of God. And you can do the same when you find yourself in less than ideal circumstances. Trust God and glorify Him right where He has you. Paul did that. Can't we do that? Anybody here in less than ideal circumstances? You don't have to raise your hand. 
What are you going to do with it? Redeem it. Redeem it. Look, Paul was facing trial and possibly death at the whim and impulse of the emperor who was a madman. But Paul knew that the ultimate authority wasn't Nero, but it was Christ and Paul was in his hand. He told the Ephesians that God works all things after the counsel of his will. He trusted God. To the Colossians, he wrote that Christ created all things, holds everything together by the will of his power, and has supremacy over all things. And these truths were confirmed and enlarged in Paul's mind through his imprisonment in Rome. Look, as Paul reflected on these things, he marveled at the sovereignty and the grace of God. And that made him rejoice. And that's the counsel that he gave to those that he wrote to from prison in Rome to reflect upon the things of God, to set their minds on the things of God. Set your mind on things above, he told the Colossians, not on the things that are of the earth. Reflect upon who God is, what he's doing, what he will do. And as we do that, we will rejoice in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, even in the hard circumstances. Focus. Hey, the providence of God sometimes leads us into some unexpected and into some uncomfortable places, but nothing happens by mistake. God knows what He's doing. Trust Him. Be faithful. Rejoice. Glorify your King where He has you. The book of Acts ends on a very triumphant note. With Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And how good is that? How good is that? Paul in the capital of the pagan empire. And what's he doing? He's preaching the kingdom of God. And he's a prisoner. And God's using him greatly in prison. That's amazing. And so we find... That the first three decades of the history of the church ends where it began. With the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. Luke doesn't tell us what ultimately happened to Paul. Eventually he stood before Nero. It seems that he was released later on and that he went on and did more evangelistic work for the glory of God. However, we know for sure from 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Paul was rearrested and later on he was martyred. According to tradition, Paul was beheaded by order of Nero. Nero. But Luke tells us none of that. See, there's no real epilogue to this book because Luke wasn't writing a biography of Paul or of Peter or of any of the apostles. No, for the book of Acts isn't the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of God, the Holy Spirit. And good news, his work didn't end in the first century. No, it it goes on even today and even right here amongst us. See, Acts really is an unfinished book because it's still continuing as God continues to build His church and as God continues to save lost souls. Hey, no one forbidding Paul. Uh, No one forbidding us. Can the government stop us? No. Can, Can a pandemic hinder God's word? Come on. No. We should yell that out. Absolutely not. Here's the question. Will we continue on with the mission or will we be lazy and keep silent? Lord, help us to continue on with the mission with passion and fervor and love for God and others who desperately need Him. Think about this. 
Paul came to Rome armed with nothing but the sword of God's word. But that was sufficient for it's a power of God for salvation. And so he preached it and so must we. As one said, over the years and generations that followed, Men and women spoke the word of God wherever they went and conversions happened, churches were established and lives were changed. Those Christians didn't try to win the world with entertainment or by compromise or with an easy gospel, no. They confronted the world with the one-way gospel that the apostles preached, the one that Peter stated so clearly at the beginning of this book in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, and that is right. And that name is Jesus, and he's very good, at what he does. And he's a very gracious Savior and Lord. Anybody know that? Don't we know it? The mission is the same. We are called to take that same gospel to our neighbors, to our places of work, to the gym, to the store, to the many desperately lost souls around us and to the remotest parts of the earth. We can't do everything, but we can all do something. Lord, help us. So, preach it. Live it out with passion. And show the world around you what a great God and Savior we have. Jesus Christ. The one who gives hope to the hopeless. Peace to those in turmoil. Forgiveness and cleansing to the dirty and stained. That's us. Love to the unlovable. Life to the dead. Grace to the undeserving. And joy to the desperate. And so, so very much more. Lord, help us. And look, Jesus is coming soon. Until then, let's continue on with this great, incredible mission at hand with passion, with fervor, and with love for our God and others. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word of truth. Thank you for the book of Acts that so challenges us today. Help us, Lord, to continue on with the mission at hand, knowing that it's your work we are doing We're just vessels, but Lord, help us to be faithful vessels. Help us to be passionate vessels as we continue on with the book of Acts. Use us. Embolden us. Fire us up for your glory. And help us to have a great impact here. Use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.